0: Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, joyful.gifts. Joyful.gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion, while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www.know.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 71. Abraham and Seawiris. Before we start, I have a couple of housekeeping items that I would like to take care of first. If everything went according to the plan, this episode would be released on November 19th, which means it will be three days away from Coptic Voice Leadership and Identity Summit. I'm not sure if there will be any tickets left, but if you decide to show up last minute, reach out and we'll figure something out. And speaking of reaching out, the podcast now fully lives on the CopticVoiceUS.com website. Its own website will be discontinued shortly. Updates and news will be disseminated through the Coptic Voice social media accounts, as well as the website and Patreon for those who support the podcast financially. To reach out to me personally. Jonathan at CopticVoiceUS.com would be the official channel. Also, Twitter and Facebook will work too. So yeah, no more history of the cops.wordpress stuff. Just simply CopticVoiceUS.com. Also, I have a correction from last week's episode. I said that there is no mention of the 1000 dinars yearly payment after Mina. That is not true. There is a mention of a renegotiated payment of 500 dinars at the reign of the patriarch who comes after Mina. The subject of this week episode, Abraham. So, it's a bit murky what happened there. Either the payment was stopped temporarily and resumed when the conditions improved under the Fatimids, Ormina somehow managed to figure out a way to bay it. And with these couple of things out of the way, we can resume our narrative. Last time, we stopped at a nice transition point. The conquest of Egypt by the Fatimids and the official inauguration of Cairo in June 973 was the arrival of the Caliph and his court. This transfer of power had major implications for the province and the Copts, as Egypt was no longer a place where revenue was drawn from, rather, a place where revenue was going to. Not to mention, the Caliph brought with him a very strong supporting caste of competent and experienced administrators who quickly transformed Egypt from a collection of privately held fiefdoms into the center of power in the Mediterranean. Those men included Ibn Kallis, a Jewish convert who eventually became the vizier of the caliph and head of the civil state. A few of Khafur's old administrators, with the most important one to us being the Copt Abu Yuman Cosmas ibn Mina, who was quote overseer of the land? Cosmos did okay for a while, but Ibn Kallis managed to convince the caliph to quote-unquote promote him to a governorship in Palestine, essentially removing him from the center of power. But we will go back to that incident in a bit. And two newcomers from North Africa, an Islamic theologian and a judge, who was the ideological mouthpiece of the Fatimid state, al-Nu'man, he codified and wrote down what could be called Ismaili Sharia, giving the state a veneer of the rule of law. Also, the Shia caliphs, at the heart of their legitimacy, was a special mandate from God. So, they were absolute monarchs in the strictest terms whose words and whims were the law, regardless of what al man wrote down. And lastly, completing the caste was a Berber administrator named al Kutami. He ended up being close to Ibn Khilis and mostly kept the Berber tribes loyal to the caliph. In addition to that caste, al-Mu'az and his arrival was helped in a major way by a couple of developments. First, the Nile floods normalized again, which, when combined with the depopulation of the previous seven years of famines, meant that there were an excess of food rather than shortage. As the history of the patriarchs describes, quote, a number of the Bishforixis were depopulated, an account of their being empty of people and bishops were not appointed to them, but they were joined to the populated seas which were neighboring to them. They were Tarnut, Urat, Nastura, Anula, Istaf, Harut, Itsu, Abrasa, Dikla, Niklus, and many places for which time does not suffice to mention them all. So, we're probably looking at 10-20% to 20% loss of population here, but, but conversions may have also played a role. The second development was that the Cormacians overextended themselves and attacked Egypt again in 974. The full might of the Fatimids was around this time to meet themselves, since the Caliph was in Egypt. As such they were crushed and ceased to be a significant geopolitical player. Which meant other than Egypt's southern borders with Nubia, Egypt had no hostile enemies on its borders and Syria up until Aleppo and Antioch where the Byzantines were expanding were up for the taking. These two new developments gave the Fatimids enough of a breathing room to really change things around for Egypt. Ibn Kallis and Al-Qutami rebuilt the tax system essentially from scratch, taxing not only the land or the people, but the commercial activities and the trade guilds. This amounted to an overall increase of taxation slash revenue, but without the expected populist resistance. Since, it involved decreasing the rates and a heavily taxed large group, the farmers, and introducing new taxes and a prosperous but a small group, the textile shop owners and merchants. Further, no man work is not to be underestimated. He really established the rule of law, and the land had a measure of justice in it. The last thing, and most important for us, was that a large bureaucracy of scribes were recruited to make sure everything is written down, documented, and monitored by a strong central government in Cairo. That bureaucracy was very quickly dominated by the Copts. So much so, that before the end of the century, it will produce a Coptic vizier in the mold of Ibn Now, Ibn was a smart guy and he intended that bureaucracy to be balanced between the Berbers from North Africa and Copts from Egypt. Since the goal here would be to balance a majority Sunni population with these two minority groups, Copts and Berbers, keeping everyone loyal. To the Shia caliph and unable to accumulate too much power. But the North Africans were fighters, not accountants and scribes. So, more or less, their influence would be confined to the army, leaving that civil administration to the Copts. Those balancing efforts, plus Ibn Khalif's personal rivalry with other civil elites who happened to be Copts like Cosmos Ibn Minas, will paint him as a villain in the Coptic Sources. The stereotypical medieval anti-Christian Jew. A sneaky snake, scheming and manipulating the Muslim authorities to suppress Christianity. So yeah, Ibn Nicholas, like all of the protagonists in our story, is a complicated guy rationalizing the administration of Egypt and opening up a path of prosperity for many Copts this week, but scheming and entrapping the patriarch next week in a legendary saga where literally a mountain will move. Coupled with those administrative reforms, an underrated but a very important fiscal reform took place. You see, With the breakdown of the central Abbasid Caliphate. Minting money was a decentralized mess, coinage was constantly debased and a dinar worse varied from one coin to another and one place to another. This put the brakes on trade and generally made long-range commerce difficult. the Fatimids at their entry to Egypt changed all that. Jawhar, the conquering general and his own initiative minted brand-new gold dinars called Mu'azi dinars after a Mu'az. Their gold content was extremely high and despite early economic pressure he did not debase them. Further He started withdrawing all the debased coins from circulation and decided to collect taxes only in Mu'azi dinars. When the caliph came, Jauhar's policy continued and those new dinars were never debased or altered. This greatly stimulated trade, especially with the outside world and commerce would be much more important to the Fatimids than to the Abbasids, hence as we will get to, their future practical diplomacy with the Byzantines. To use a modern example, the Fatmids dinars ended up being the medieval dollar, an international currency which everyone was happy to accept. Al-Muaz died in December 975, after a flurry of achievement in the two years he stayed in Egypt. The economy was stabilized, the Cormacians were defeated, a grand new city was built, and most importantly for the Fatimid's prestige, the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca, the Hajj was safe again, with the Fatimid's imams being acknowledged as the true caliphs there. We would leave the Fatimid state here for now. As Mina, the Coptic patriarch, who have witnessed all these changes, passed away a few months before al starting a new period for the Coptic patriarchy. A time where peace and prosperity were possible again, took a month or two to ordain the new patriarch were called the bishops of the land of Masr, from the reef from the two sides and the scribes of Masr and the priests of Alexandria assembled and remained for several days but they did not find anyone whom it pleased them to advance to the patriarchy and to be clear with the terms here Masr. Is the Arabic name for Egypt but it can be used as in this instance to describe the central area of Egypt where modern Giza slash old Memphis Fustat, and Cairo all exist. The reef is used to describe rural Egypt in general but in this instance it was describing major Delta population centers such as the Meta and Tennis. The two sides are Upper Egypt and the distinction in the text serves takes well to explain the various stakeholders who had a hand in picking the patriarch. You had the clergy of Alexandria, a coalition of bishops in the Delta, another coalition from Upper Egypt and perhaps most importantly for this period, the civil elite in Fustad. These guys were becoming very prosperous and influential, and as such, they broke the deadlock by simply ordaining one of their own. A Syrian merchant who did not have much of a relationship with the monastic establishment of Egypt, a biased layman rather than a monk, his name was Ibrahim ibn Zara, or Ephraim the Syrian. To keep the Arabic name consistent, I'll be using Abraham. Abraham was probably the equivalent of the official representative of the Syrian merchants in Egypt, where he lived permanently and dealt with the Egyptian civil elite on the Syrian merchants' behalf. He was probably a banker. Extremely rich, but also beloved and trusted in the Fustat Cairo community, and truly a pious individual. When Cosmas ibn Mina left for Palestine, he entrusted his fortune to Abraham, some 90,000 dinars, instructing him to distribute it to the poor if he were to die while away. And after a false rumor that the cremation killed him, Abraham did end up spending the money as instructed, only to find out that Cosmas was still alive and his deaths was just a rumor. Nonetheless, Cosmas, in an act of piety, did not make a fuss about the loss, telling Abraham, quote, He did well for me. And performed a good action and mercy on my behalf, since she distributed my money among those in need and did not leave it for the king. So yeah, Abraham was a popular and a trusted guy in Fustat. In a big feast, where a large group of bishops and clergy came to Fustat anyway, Abraham was nominated by the civil elite and ordained on the spot. Then was the ordination already done? He traveled to Alexandria to be consecrated there as well. Was the debate already settled and a deed accomplished? As a patriarch, Abraham did extremely well by all accounts. His fortune allowed him to take a strong stance on simony and limit the practice. His relationships and connections in Fustad meant that he got along extremely well with the administration, holding one-on-one meetings with al Muizz just before he died in 975. The relationship is significant. Even so, Abraham and al Muizz were around in the same time for probably less than six months. Lots of important things happened in those six months. Also in addition to Abraham tough stance in simony he really took on another tough moral battle against the same civil elite that pushed his ordination. This was the battle of concubines who were explicitly forbidden for the Christians but a, a mark of social distinction for the Muslims. Abraham would not tolerate the holding of concubines and repeatedly threatened the civil elite with excommunication if they did not give up their slaves. Many of them did but a few did not and ignored the patriarch. In response Abraham went to the most powerful of them, an unnamed high archon from among the chiefs of Duvans, and tried to speak to him in person, as the history of the patriarchs puts it in his mouth. Perhaps if I go to him, he will have respect before me. Instead, when the civil officer found out that the patriarch was coming to him, He made sure that no one in his house opened for him. Abraham, after waiting for two hours on the doorsteps, he excommunicated him. And, if we believe the official story, the civil administrator died shortly after the excommunication. And, quote, All those who were in Messr feared the patriarch. The official story is too optimistic so. As Michael, Bishop of Tennis, writing about 75 years later, tells us, It is said that one of the archons, known as Abisurur al-Kabir, who had influence in the state and possessed many concubines, Abraham commanded him to send them away, but he did not. Then, he excommunicated him and forbade him the Eucharist. He acted craftily that he gave to Abraham a drink to drink and killed him. I.e., and this is my part, Abraham was poisoned. But accounts of poisoning in the medieval world should be taken with a grain of salt. As people died for all kinds of reasons and they died suddenly and it did look like they were poisoned. So, I don't know if Abraham was really poisoned, but for sure, his battle against concubines lasted until his death. Now, I want to end this week's episode with a very important individual who will play an important role next week, and really, in the big scheme of things, when it comes to the Arabization of the Copts. This person is Severe Safal or in Arabic, Sawiris ibn Mukaffa. Sawiris is super important because he was the first Coptic theologian to write in Arabic. Not because he didn't know Coptic, rather to make his writing accessible to the Christian masses who were now more comfortable in Arabic than Coptic. The Arab conquest of Egypt played out in 646 A.D. Now, close to 325 years later, we can definitively say that Arabic was the language of the land. Were there pockets of Coptic? Sure. But the liturgy in Coptic would not be understood by most folks in Egypt at this point. As Sawiris not only wrote in Arabic, he lobbied did the church transition from Coptic to Arabic to make it more accessible. Lobbying that was mostly successful, despite intense resistance from the monastic establishment, specifically an unnamed monk who wrote an apocalyptic prophecy under the name of Samuel, lamenting the widespread use of Arabic, Sawiris was probably born around 908, in the period between Ibn Tulun and Al-Ikhzid, a time of instability and increased conversion. His family afforded to give him an education, but there is really nothing that indicates that they were of any wealth, and with his education, Sawiris ended up as a civil servant for a few years where he perfected his Arabic and got uncomfortable with the precepts of Islam. A few years into his career, Salir decided to quit the world and become a monk. There, in a monastery, he spent a lot of time reading old manuscripts and self-learning about the old fathers of the church and their work. It is hard to pin down exact dates with Sawyers, but we don't hear from him until 950 ED when he was in his 40s, so it may have been as long as 20 years of quiet scholarship. There, in 950, he produced an anti milkite treaty defending the Miafisan theology in Arabic against the attacks. Of a very capable Melkite historian and a theologian, Eutychius of Alexandria, or an Arabic, Sad ibn al-Batriq. Ibn al was a brilliant Melkite physician based in Fustad, and later the patriarch of the Melkite church in Egypt. He, rather than Sawiris, was truly the first Egyptian to embrace Arabic. As a language of Christian theology, he wrote a massive universal history from the point of view of Melkite Christians in Egypt. On accompanying this history, a couple of theological treaty and Miaphysite Christianity. A natural side discussion of a universal history narrative from the point of view of Melkite Christianity, on a topic of interest to his audience. Now. Here is where it gets really tempted to get sidetracked and talk about how Ibn Battriq's history gets picked up by the European Enlightenment Orientalist, which massively skewed the historiography of the area for 200 years, and how its counterpart, the history of the patriarchs, gets studied much later and with a lot less interest. But I'm not going to do that. We're here for the history, not the history of the history. Just know that Ibn Battriq is a big deal, and Milkaid Christianity in Egypt did very well under him. For us, he was the guy that first prompted Saviars to write in Arabic, translating the highly technical theological formulas into Arabic. Severus' response to Ibn-Batriq did very well in ecclesiastical circles, especially that Ibn-Batriq was dead and could not respond as he died in 940. He was then ordained as a bishop for al-Ashmunin, a city in Upper Egypt, probably either under the patriarchy of Macarius or Sioufanis. As a bishop, he continued to write, Also, it gets very dicey to actually establish what he wrote. You see, he ended up kind of a legend after he died. So a lot of things would be attributed to him to make them legitimate, where they would be actually written by someone else. The history of the patriarchs is a good example for that. It is attributed to him, but he had nothing to do with it we know for sure that he wrote at least two books but up to 38 works are attributed to him by the time of the Fatimids and al muizz his fame and career were pretty established he was in his 60s and was a reputation as the leading intellectual of the Coptic church so he ended up in al muizz court Alongside Abraham, our patriarch. In the court, he stood out as a sharp, witty, and a constant participant in inter religious discussion that the Caliph used to hold as a sort of an intellectual amusement. For example, in a snippet of these discussions, Sawiris gets asked what is a dog that basta was a Christian or a Muslim. It was supposed to be a trick question. Say it's a Muslim, and it will be an insult to the caliph and the Muslims in court, as culturally, calling someone a dog is an insult. Say a Christian, and it will be a humiliation. So naturally, Severus tried to get out of answering by telling the Muslim audience to ask the dog themselves. But that did not work. And he was pressed for an answer, and so he responded by pointing out that as the day is Friday, and Christians do not eat meat on Fridays, but Muslims do. If they wish to see what religion is the dog, then simply throw him a piece of meat, and see if he's going to eat it or not. al was entertained by the clever answer. And so, Sawiers had earned his seat and his court. And here we end this week. Sawiers and Abraham are in excellent relation with al who his court teemed with intellectual energy and competent men. This dynamic will be put to the test next week. When these discussions eventually lead to, to the most controversial event in medieval Egypt, the moving of a mountain, as it says in Matthew 20. If you have face as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And so, do Severus and Abraham have this face? We'll find out next time.